Let us pray. Father and our God, as we prepare our hearts for worship now to sit under the preaching and teaching of your word and truth, uh, we echo the prayer of our pastor that through your Spirit's help that you would give him the ability to preach and teach your word unashamedly and boldly, even to a wicked culture that takes much offense. Lord, we pray that uh, through your great words of truth, we would be edified, our minds would be transformed, and we would even be rebuked when needed. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You would turn with me, please, in your Bibles once again to Mark's Gospel and chapter 3. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Bear with me a moment. All right. I'm going to read here in a few moments. I'm going to back up and read from Mark chapter 2, verse 23, and read down through verse 6 of Mark chapter 3. We have two narrations here, two vignettes two events recorded back-to-back. We don't know chronologically if they happened back-to-back in immediate sequence or whether there was some gap between. But Mark has recorded for us, back-to-back, two instances involving our Lord and healing on the Sabbath. And to no surprise, if you've read the Gospels, you know that that always produces controversy. Last week, we looked at the statement that Jesus makes in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2 in Mark, where he asserts that the Sabbath was made for man, and that he himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, is Lord of that Sabbath. He is the one who made it. He's the one who created it. And it's a gift given to all men in all places, not only just to the Jews, not only just to Christians, but to give to all men in all places. What I want to wrestle with today is in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, but I want to begin by posing a question to you. What is the heart of the Sabbath? The sermon title is just that, the heart of the Sabbath. But if I were to, and I'm not going to, but if I were to pass out a piece of paper and a pencil to every one of you and to write, ask you to write down your, your answer and, and seal it up and save it for later. Those of you who are note takers, maybe you want to write it in your notes, your uh, temporary answer or your, your uh, first, first kind of first blush answer, and, and hang on to that. Those of you who are not note-takers, write it down in your brains. Write down a word in your minds or write down a phrase. What is the heart of the Sabbath? If somebody asks you that. What's the real substance? You know, if you've really boiled everything down and, and boiled off all the other stuff, took away all the dross, took away all the, the, the ceremonial attachments to the Sabbath. What is the heart of the Sabbath? I'm not, I'm not going to answer that immediately. I want you to think about your answer. Think about it this way. If you were to ask the Pharisees that Jesus interacts with, what would they say is the heart of the Sabbath? And how much does your answer differ from theirs? With that question in mind, 
let's read the text. And again, I'm going to back up to verse 23 of chapter 2, and then I'm going to read through verse 6 of chapter 3. Two different events, actual, literal, historical events that happened in the life of, of our Savior. It could have happened on the same Sabbath day. It could have happened on consecutive Sabbath days. It could have happened on Sabbath days that were several weeks apart. We don't know. That's not the point. So, but both of these events happen on the Sabbath day. Here is the Word of God. Uh, hear and listen as I read along. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So did your answer change? What is the heart of the Sabbath? What's the true essence of the Sabbath? I'm going to try to persuade your conscience today in the sermon that the heart of the Sabbath is the goodness of God. The heart of the Sabbath is the goodness of God. If you don't remember anything else, please remember that. This is the essence of the Sabbath. But, but when we think about the question, we might be tempted to, to answer with things like, well, the heart of the Sabbath is obedience. The heart of the Sabbath is duty. The heart of the Sabbath is commitment. The heart of the Sabbath is something else. And those all may be good things. Obedience is a good thing. Duty is a good thing. Commitment is a good thing. Worship is a good thing. What's the heart of the Sabbath? Saints, it's the goodness of God. And I want to show you this in three ways in the text. And again, our focus is going to be on the second narrative in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 3. But number one, we're going to see this. We see the goodness of God in the law itself, the law generally. Now, our focus is going to be on the fourth commandment. We said last week, the fourth commandment is an abiding commandment. The moral law, 10 out of 10 commandments, are still in full effect. God has not abrogated, done away with, abolished, or buried the Sabbath under, some, uh, under the heap of the Old Testament temple. Ceremonially, 
the day has changed. As we confessed in our catechism earlier, it is no longer the seventh day, but to mark the resurrection of Christ, it is now the first day of the week. The moral law is one in seven to be observed. There was a ceremonial aspect of that as to which day. And God has changed that day from the seventh to the first. But the Sabbath is of abiding validity. We're going to see that repeated again. That's where Jesus says it's, the Sabbath was made. as part of the creation ordinance. It was made for man. It didn't say it was made for Israel. It didn't say it was made for Moses. It doesn't say it was made for Jacob or Abraham. It was made for man, all men. So it's perpetually abiding and binding. But zooming back out, more than just the fourth commandment, what do we think about all of God's law? Do we see that as good? Well, the second thing I want to consider is the goodness specifically of the Sabbath. The goodness of God revealed to us in the Sabbath. And lastly, we want to watch and see our Lord's response to those who oppose that goodness. We see the opposition to goodness. So we have the goodness of the law, the goodness of the Sabbath, and then opposition to goodness. So let's consider in the first place the goodness of the law. Look what happens here. Jesus enters the synagogue. Now Matthew, I think a little bit tongue-in-cheek, Matthew says he enters into their synagogue. I think Matthew's already tipping his hand and saying, you know what, this whole system that the Jews have built on top of the pure, unadulterated law of Moses, it doesn't even resemble anything from God anymore. So Matthew, I think, wants us to see it's not even... It's not even God's synagogue anymore. And I think this is affirmed later on when Jesus says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. And he turns over the vendors who were not just buying and selling, but thieving and stealing and manipulating and taking advantage of in the temple courtyard. So let's think about the goodness of the law. Look what happens here. Jesus enters their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Now Luke gives us, I think, an important detail. Luke tells us it's his right hand that was withered. Now why was that important? Well, the vast majority of us, there are exceptions, of course, but the vast majority of us are right-handed, which means it was not just that he had a hand that was withered, but his livelihood was withered. See, we, we take for granted sometimes we have these kinds of, we might have an impediment that doesn't hinder us from still being productive. But in the ancient world, it was more frequently the case that someone who had such an ailment was rendered a life of begging. In fact, the apocryphal literature, extra-biblical literature, says that this man was a stonemason previously and that somehow his hand had been injured and he could no longer work. And so the issue was not just his physical welfare, but probably the welfare of his whole family. And Jesus watches this scene as he enters in. And you can just imagine, use your sanctified imagination and see these, these Pharisees, see the rulers of the Jews in their Sabbath best. Their robes with their phylacteries and their fringes and all the outward elements that, that indicated their righteousness and commitment to the law. And they sat there, no doubt, in the best seats. And they probably sat there with their pious arms crossed, watching for Jesus to come in. And Mark tells us what they were looking for. They're looking to see whether he would heal this man. 
not so that they could rejoice in his healing, but they might accuse Jesus. See, they're looking to trip him up on something. And Jesus knows their hearts. He knows their hearts, and he, he doesn't skirt around the issue. He literally makes this man front and center. He says to the man publicly, come here. And notice the question that he asks. We see this in verse 4. This is the real central issue of the text. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? Is it lawful to save a life or to kill it? Now, there's, there's an irony in his question. Do you hear the irony? Think of what the Pharisees are plotting. They're plotting nothing less than murder. And in their minds, they're the righteous ones. In their self-deceived, hard-hearted, self-righteous minds, they're the good guys. And Jesus asked them, asked the whole crowd, is, is, it, is it lawful to save a life or to kill? Is it lawful to do good on this day or do harm? See, that's the issue. And before we look at the day in particular, again, I want to zoom out and think about the goodness of the law in general. How do you, brother, how do you, sister, view the law of God? When you think about the law of God, particularly as a Christian, what do you think is your proper relationship to the law? Do you see the law as something that's kind of old and outdated and, and maybe it's applicable to other people? Or do you see the law as an abiding good for your own soul and for the ordering of your own life? This is where Reformed theology often departs from other streams of Christianity. Is, is really how we understand the law and whether we view the law as really good. The first, the, the Reformed taught generally that there were three uses of the law. And, and generally speaking, there was broader agreement on the first two uses with other Christians. The first use is, is what is known as the pedagogical use. Pedagogy is a fancy word for teaching and instruction. But the pedagogical use of the law is simply that the law demonstrates the weakness of men. It demonstrates the sinfulness of men. It's like a mirror. You hold it up to yourself and you say, ouch, that's not pretty. That's not good. And the law serves as a tutor. It, 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 it serves to demonstrate your need, my need for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the mercy of God. That's the pedagogical use of the law. That, that had always been a use of the law, remains a use of the law universally. And again, there's not a lot of disagreement on Christians among Christians on this particular issue. There may be nuances and emphasis on different syllables, but, the, but the, there's a general agreement. Augustine wrote this, he said, The law orders that we, after attempting to do what is ordered, and so feeling our weakness under the law, may learn to implore the help of grace. So we look at the law and we say, Oh my, I have fallen short. I don't measure up to this. Oh Lord, will you help me? But there's a second use of the law, again, broad agreement here among most Christians, not absolute agreement, but, but broad agreement, and it was we would call this the civil use of the law. There's a good civil use of the law. 
it, this is where the law helps restrain evil in, in a society. And that society could be civil, national, geographical, it could be in a church, it could be in, in a home. Various societies are governed by laws. So the law is useful to protect the righteous from the unjust, for example. It's, it's useful to, uh, to promote justice in a society. Again, whether that society is a small society like a home, or a little bit bigger society like a church, or in a bigger society like a city or a municipality or a nation or, or others. But it, it's, it's concerned with justice, even if that justice is incomplete in this age. So there's a second use of that law. And of course, God has appointed the civil magistrate as one ambassador, as one tool, one instrument for God to use in honoring this particular use of the law. Now, of course, this is where some of the disagreements do begin to come in among Christians. Is what's, to what extent should the civil authorities be involved in enforcing the law? But John Calvin said this, by means of its fearful denunciations and the consequent dread of punishment to curb those who unless forced, have no regard for rectitude and justice. So the law is helpful to say very clearly within a society, this is in bounds and this is out of bounds. This is permissible, this is impermissible. This is lawful, this is unlawful. And God's law, God's moral law, should be the useful guide to shape those affirmations and prohibitions. But there's a third use of the law, and this is where Reformed theology self-consciously departs from, in, in our history, the General Baptists or the Anabaptists and other groups. And it's what we would call the normative use of the law. And the law establishes a pattern of righteousness for all men, including Christians. Including Christians. Through God's perfect and holy law, the Christian now is able to see very clearly, objectively, what is right, what is righteous in the sight of God. And so that the Christian man, the Christian woman, can now make use of his renewed will to follow after the mind and heart of God. The Christian may now experience joy as her new affections increasingly conform to the mind and to the authority and to the will of God revealed in His Word. Now I commend to you, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it now, but in, in our Confession of Faith, in chapter 19, this is a chapter called Of the Law. And I would encourage you to meditate on paragraph 6. We'll put this in your notes. Chapter 19, paragraph 6. It, it, it uses a little bit different language, but, use, but outlines these same three purposes of the law. And describes the law as good, it's useful, it's profitable, even for the Christian. See, we have this false dichotomy sometimes in our evangelical culture that says, well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. So the law doesn't have anything to do with me anymore now that I'm a Christian. I'm just led by the Holy Spirit as if there's some sort of cosmic download that comes to me so that I know what's right and wrong. Brothers and sisters, that isn't the way God works. He's given us something objective, something tangible, something we may study, something that David said we can actually learn and memorize, internalize, so that we might not sin against God. So again, among Christians, those first two uses of the law are not usually controversial too much. All agree that the law expose, exposes our faults and our sins. 
Almost all agree that the law is useful in restraining sin. So we see the goodness of the law in those areas. And parents, you understand this. Parents have to understand this. With respect to the law, even, even if you apply it inconsistently, you, you need rules. You need ordinances. You need statutes in your home, don't you? Just to promote the peace. Just to promote the welfare, the safety the overall well-being of your whole family. And, and, and so with young children, you start with very basic commands because, you know, frankly, their world is fairly small, so the commands can be fairly small, right? Things like, don't touch. Things like, be quiet. Things like, mommy said or daddy said. Things like, don't hit. Or, now is the time to sleep. Basic commands, right? And as the children grow and as they develop, those commands grow, become broader because the world is broader. To your two-year-old, there's really not a lot of, of necessity to talk about traffic laws, is there? But that becomes much more relevant for an older teenager, doesn't it? As children get older, the laws, in a sense, become more general, and it's an appeal to wisdom more and more, but there still is a foundation of law of yes and no, of do and do not. And we see this reflected in the Apostle Paul's own testimony in terms of the, the, these first two uses of the law. Paul, Paul testifies himself, I would not have known sin unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And Paul knew in that moment when he was faced with the law of God, I'm a sinner, said Paul. The law says, do not covet, and I find myself coveting. I find myself wanting what my neighbor has. I find myself even imagining doing things to get what my neighbor has. And I recognize, because God's Word says, that's sin that needs to be forsaken. So almost all Christians agree with that part, that the law is useful for ordering civil society. But it usually comes on the point of, of what is the civil magistrate's role in penalizing in fractions of the law. But can't we recognize an inconsistency there? Most of us have no problem whatsoever saying the civil magistrate needs to enforce the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. You shall not do violence against your neighbor. You shall not strike thy neighbor over his head and take his stuff, which is also the eighth commandment. We, we recognize the government really ought to enforce six and eight and even nine, you can't lie in court. You, you, you have to be truthful. Then when it comes to seven, ah, that's private. Somebody's business, what someone does in their own bedroom, that's not... Are we consistent? Sadly, too many Christians have been taught that the law of God, as law per se, is not binding upon the Christian. They understand that there's, there's sort of a, a nagging suspicion that the law isn't good. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. This is the, our adversary, adversary's very first lie when he came to Eve and he tempted her with the fruit. He says, has God really said? And, and then he goes on to tell Eve and Adam both that God has withholding something from you. If you were to eat this, you will have the knowledge of good and evil. And the implication, clear, clear as day there, is God has withheld from you something good that his law that he gave to you, don't eat of that tree that that law is not good for you. 
and that if you were to obey that law, you would be deprived of some material good. And see, there's still a nagging suspicion sometimes, even in Christian circles, that the law itself is old and outdated, and because Christ has abolished the ceremonial and judicial laws, that all of the law, somehow, is not good. I mentioned our confession earlier in paragraph 6. Paragraph 7 is very short. It's the last paragraph of that chapter. I do want to read that to you. It says, Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law. That's those threefold uses. Neither are those aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with that. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. Saints, may we all testify with David that the law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. How do you view the law? Don't, don't, don't give yourself the Sunday school answer. Think carefully about how you view the law of God. Do you, do you view it as essentially, fundamentally good? Or do you still have, as a believer, sort of a nagging suspicion that there's a lack of goodness there? That keeping of the law that keeping the commands of God, that following closely the commands of the Scriptures is, 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 is legalism, or it's fundamentalism, or something, some other ism that you want to avoid. Or do you say, no, the law is good. The commands of God are good for me. When the Bible gives me a command and I obey it, it's good. Well, I, I, I want to obey out of grace only. That's great. But obedience is required as well. Do we see that? Do we seek to teach those to our children, to those in our care? Do we recognize that obedience, for obedience' sake, is a good thing? As we train our children, we're training them one day by the Spirit of God and by the grace of Christ to obey the law of God. Because we've inculcated in them, we've, we've taught them, we've sort of, by our behavior and by, our, by the way that we've governed our home, we've catechized them to see that authority and law and obedience are good things, not something to be avoided. The law is good. It's not something that constrains men. It's not something that harms us. It's not something that hinders our growth and development. It's good. It's right. Is the law a blessing to you? Is it a burden? Do you see the law as an expression of God's goodness? And not only generally, but specifically, is it a good to you? Is it a good to your household? Is it a good to your children? It is, a good, is it a good thing for your neighbors? And so we, we understand the law 
generally as good, but now we come to the specific matter of the Sabbath day. Is it also good? In fact, is it of a particular good for mankind and for the people of God? We know it's an abiding commandment, but is it an abiding good for God's people? So let's think next about the goodness of the Sabbath day. And again, think about the Lord's question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? To save life or kill? Now, in Matthew's account, he records Jesus as challenging the Jews because they were silent. Imagine that. He asked this question. Is it lawful to do good or do evil? And they sat there stone-faced without the courage or the conviction even to answer his question. In Matthew's Gospel, he records, there's some additional words that Jesus speaks. He says, what man is there among you who has sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You see what Jesus does? He says, look, you all, all of you, recognize if a dumb sheep that belongs to you falls into a pit, you don't wait until Sunday to get it out. You immediately, you lay hold of that animal because you recognize inherently that is good. And you rescue that helpless animal. Now there's a longer quote I want to, I want to read for you, but this is really helpful uh, Stephen Charnock, uh, 17th century or 18th century theologian, has a two-volume set called The Existence and Attributes of God. And, and there, as he meditates upon the goodness of God, he actually cites this particular event recorded in Mark 3 and, and Matthew chapter 12. And listen to what Charnock says. He says, as a lawgiver to the Jews, God took care that the poor beast should not be abused by the cruelty of man. He provided for the case of the laboring beast in that command of the Sabbath wherein he provided for his own service, meaning his own worship. So much does divine goodness bow down itself to take notice of these mean creatures that, ha that men have so little regard to but for their own advantage. Yea, he is so good that he would have worship declined for a time in favor of a distressed beast. The helping of a sheep or an ox or a donkey out of a pit was indulged them even on the Sabbath day, a day God had peculiarly sanctified and ordered for His service or His worship. In this case, He seems to remit for a time the rights of deity for the rescue of a mere animal. Persons seated in a sovereign throne think it a debasing of their dignity to regard little things, but God who is infinitely greater in majesty above the mightiest potentate and highest angel, yet is so infinitely good as to employ his divine thoughts about the lowliest things. He who possesses the praises of angels leaves not off the care of the lowliest creatures. And that majesty that dwells in a pure heaven and an inconceivable light stoops to provide for the ease of those creatures that lie and lodge in the dirt and dung of the earth. 
How should we be careful not to use those unmercifully that God takes such care of in His law and not to distrust that goodness that opens His hands so generously to creatures of another rank? Now, follow the argument. Jesus says, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? Charnock argues, he says, just, just meditate upon, and, and, the, and I left out the quotes where he talks about, he cites this particular Old Testament passages that provide for the, the ox when he's treading out the corn, that provides for a mandate that your, your, your oxen, your donkeys, everything must rest on the Sabbath day, not just men. In fact, even the inanimate objects, even the lilies and flowers of the field, Jesus says, are clothed by God with grandeur that even Solomon can't match. And if he shows that level of good to dumb beasts, saints, how much more good does he have for you on the Sabbath? Jesus' Sabbath was made for man. Even the dumb beast has a superabundance of the goodness of God poured out upon him. And he can't even discern it. He doesn't even have the capacity, the reasonable soul, to appropriate that to himself. And Jesus stands before these hard-hearted hypocrites and says, How dare you withhold good from one created in my image? How dare you? The goodness of Christ is revealed even to a lowly animal on the Sabbath. Saints, how much more does He make His goodness known to you? And of all days, this day in particular, He is good to you every day. 368 hours every single week, He is good to you. But there is an especial goodness poured out upon the people of God as we gather in the ordinances of Christ and enter into worship with Him and participate in His presence, in the person of the Holy Spirit. What is most clear in these accounts of our Lord Jesus about the Sabbath is this. The goodness of God is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the very heart of the Sabbath. And I said last week, because Jesus is, He declares Himself Lord of the Sabbath, any notion of Sabbath observance that doesn't honor Christ can't be true Sabbath observance, can it? Because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. But the other side of that coin, we turn the coin over, the other side is also true. Any attempt to honor Christ while forsaking his Sabbath is also not true worship. Both have to be true. The Lord Jesus always did good. He never withheld good from those who were seeking it. Now under the gospel, Far from being no longer binding upon us, or, or far from being no longer useful to us, the Sabbath is far sweeter to us as Christians, as spirit-dwelt believers, than the most faithful Jew could ever even have imagined. Because the Jew not once ever went into worship thinking God is present with us. God dwelt behind a veil into which the, only one man got to enter, and even once a year at that. And now, every child of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, and under the promise that Christ in the person of His Spirit will dwell among us, we get to come every Lord's Day with that promise. 
we have a far greater promise abiding with us with respect to Sabbath rest than the most faithful Jew ever had. So when we come on the Lord's day, convinced from the Scriptures that the temple veil is torn in two from top to bottom, the Holy of Holies is opened before us in the person of Christ, we have a mediator who lives to make intercession for us, who delights to meet with us, who is present with us spiritually in, in the tables. We observe the supper here in just a few moments. This is why the Apostle of the Hebrews, when he's speaking to Christians, he's speaking to Christians about honoring the Sabbath day, he says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to this throne of grace so that we may have received mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is our assurance, saints. Now notice, Jesus summons this man, and he summons this man with a withered hand, a withered right hand, into the very midst of the assembly. In the irony here, even the most scrupulous, hypocritical Pharisee really could find no fault in what he did. With his voice, he says to the man, come here. The man stands and walks. So far, has there been any, any Sabbath infractions? Nope. Then what does Jesus do? Stretch out your hand. Is that contrary to the Sabbath to extend a hand? Nope. Then Jesus speaks, and his hand is restored. So even in his shrewdness, he gives them no occasion to accuse him. He just speaks, and he's well. He's restored. But the withered hand, saints, I want you to see this, serves as, as a type. This withered hand is a sort of object lesson also. It's a literal historical event. It was actually a man with a withered hand, a right hand, who was in a synagogue on this particular day, and Jesus healed him. And also, just as we saw with the leper, the healing of the leper, that, that the leprosy serves as a type of sin in general, this withered right hand of this man serves as, as, a, as a sort of living parable. It's an object lesson. And on this Sabbath day, Jesus is willing to heal you He's willing to heal you of whatever hinders you. Right now, whatever has come to mind, this is hindering me in my walk before the Lord. This is hindering me in my worship. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is telling you, and I won't do this to you, but perhaps the Holy Spirit is telling you, come here. Stretch out your hand. Listen to Alexander McLaren. He says, but let us not miss the parable of the restoration of the maimed and shrunken powers of the soul which the manner of the miracle gives. Whatever we try to do because Jesus bids us, he will give us strength to do it. However impossible to our unaided powers it is, in the act of stretching out the hand, ability to stretch it forth is bestowed. Power returns to atrophied muscles. Stiffened joints are supplied. The blood runs in full measure through the veins. So it is ever. Power to obey attends on the desire and effort to obey. Power to obey attends on the desire and effort to obey. We could say it another way. Power to obey comes by faith in a power given to us that we don't possess. Jesus says to this man, stretch out your hand. And he stood in front of everyone. And you've got to think, I mean, he's a human being like the rest of us, sheepishly, probably embarrassed, but 
faith filled his heart and he stretched out his hand and he drew it back whole again. Some of you need to hear this and apply this today. Perhaps spiritually speaking, the Spirit of God is doing exactly this to you in this moment. He calls you by name. He says, stretch out your hand. Whatever's hindering you now, stretch it out. Believe that God is able to heal this. That God is able to forgive you. That God is able to heal you and restore you and make you useful for worship and for service to Him. Perhaps for the very first time today, the Spirit of God is speaking to you, sinner. Come, stand right here before me. Confess your sin. Confess your weakness. Confess your frailty. Say, I need Christ. I need Him to heal me. I've tried everything. My will doesn't work. My own resolutions don't help. My own attempts to fix myself, it's all fallen in vain. Confess before the Lord what hinders you. Confess to Him your sin. Confess to Him your weakness. Claim the promise that He is faithful and just, not only to forgive you of your sin, to wash your sins away, to nail the certificate of death to the cross of Jesus Christ, stamp it paid in full, but also to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to make you whole. The Lord says to you today, because I am good, I will do good to you. Because I am goodness in the person, I will do good to you. I will heal you. I will forgive your sins. I will cleanse you from the sin that remains in you. Believer, I don't care if you've walked with Christ for a week or a hundred weeks. Will you believe that too? Stretch out your hand. Believe the Lord will heal you. See, Jesus Christ, I think, in this this scene here, reveals the true heart of the Sabbath. It's the goodness of God. And the stark contrast between these these self-righteous, hard-hearted, wicked men and the goodness of God in the flesh. And so it's no wonder that he looks around the room and he asks them the question and they all stubbornly refuse even to open their sinful mouths. And our Lord's holy response, his righteous, godly, perfect response is anger. It's righteous indignation mixed with grief. And I think there's a lesson for us my brother Julius and I were talking last night in my, my study, and I was talking about temptation to go in different directions in a sermon. And, and Brother Bodie always told me, preach one sermon at a time. Pick one and preach one sermon at a time. But there's another really good sermon here on anger. Let the reader understand. Our Lord here is, is, is modeling for us. I think this is what true righteous anger if it's truly righteous anger, I think it will always be mixed with grief. If it's red-hot 
righteous anger, and there's no sorrow in it. I don't think it's godly grief. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. So let's look at this in the last place, at the response to the unmerciful, because sadly our, our narrative doesn't end with the healing of the man. This isn't a, a, a Cinderella story. This isn't a Disney book. This isn't a, a fairy tale where everybody lives happily ever after. Can you imagine this scene? They would have all known this man, and, and the, he was healed right in, in their presence, right in front of them. <laughs> and verse 6 ought to read, the Pharisees changed their minds. The Pharisees rejoiced. The Pharisees went to prepare a feast to celebrate their brother's healing. That's not what verse 6 says at all, is it? They went out and immediately held counsel with, of all people, the Herodians. conspiring against Jesus how to destroy him. The true wickedness of their hearts is, is, is beginning to bear its fruit. See, the Lord's response to the unmerciful is, is a holy anger mixed with grief. There, the, the response of these hard-hearted men to the goodness of God was to double down on their sin. It was to seek his harm. It was to seek to destroy him. Notice the sharp contrast. In all the gospel writers, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record that they paint this, this contrast between the Lord's tenderness and his gentleness and his compassion and his goodness towards men and the hypocritical, hard-hearted, even murderous attitude of the leaders of the Jews and of all days on the Sabbath. Here they are, pretending religion. Like little boys playing dress-up. Pretending to be righteous. Pretending to be holy. While their hearts were murderous and malevolent. Where was the compassion for the hungry disciples in the previous narrative? Where was the compassion for a fellow human being who was hungry and they simply reached out and grabbed some grain as they walked along the way? Where was the compassion? Where was the mercy? Where was the gentleness to them? Where was the mercy to this man and to, probably to his family whose hand was withered, he couldn't work, he couldn't be part of, even full, fully part of the worship, because his hand was lame. Where was the mercy for him? And, and notice Jesus' response on both occasions. On, on the first one, he says, you know, have you never read? And he takes them to the Word of God and shows them how David was guiltless when he violated a ceremonial ordinance in favor of obeying the moral law to protect the bodily integrity, the bodily safety, the bodily welfare of his, of his men. And here in this second scene, Jesus gets to the real heart of the Sabbath. 
The real heart of the Sabbath is displayed strikingly here by our Lord in His tenderness, in His mercy, healing this man, further demonstrating the sharp contrast between He and His perfect goodness and these hard-hearted men who could not, would not show compassion to a fellow image bearer. And not only did the Pharisees not show any, any measure of compassion for this man, but even worse, they were seeking to set a snare now for the Son of God. They had no doubt heard about his other healings. And they, they had even heard about, remember the paralytic man? who they, they lowered, His friends lowered him down, and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, and they got uptight because he took up his bed and walked out of there carrying his bed. Well, clearly that's work. That's forbidden. You've lost the plot, guys. That's not, what, that's not the main idea here. And here a man is maimed in his hand, and they refuse to recognize the need for mercy. And I notice the silence of the Pharisees. I think this is even worse. This is, this is worse than had they stood up and openly rebutted what Jesus had said and done. You ever experienced this? You, you've asked someone a question, you've come to a brother, you've come to a, a, a sister, maybe even to your own children. And you've come in good faith. You've attempted to draw near to them. You, you, you've asked, what's going on here? And the answer is silence. It's crickets. They won't even honor your question with a response. There's a particular kind of pain involved in that, isn't there? There's, a, there's, a, there's an acute form of rejection in the silence. They wouldn't even dignify him with an answer. Such was their self-righteousness. And few things are more personally hurtful than, than asking someone, drawing near to someone, and then being met with just silence, getting the silent treatment. I think there's an implicit exhortation to us here. If ever we're the ones who are responding to someone else with the silent treatment, there's a word here for you, a word here for me. But the Pharisees' silence simultaneously shows their guilt. It shows their hard hearts. It shows their contempt for Jesus. And, and Jesus is, is rightly grieved. He's rightly angry at their hard hearts. And, and, and Mark uses one of the strongest Greek words to describe Jesus' anger. He was right to be angry both for their perversion of God's law, but also for the mistreatment of a fellow human being. Jesus Christ reveals the true heart of the Sabbath. Now go all the way back to the beginning of the sermon. Can you all remember that far back? What was your answer to the question? What's the heart of the Sabbath? I believe the heart of the Sabbath is the goodness of God. This is a gift to us. And, and, and almost all the errors attending to the Sabbath are in one way or another a neglecting or a forsaking of this, of this notion of God's goodness. Either we think this, the, the Sabbath is too much of a burden for God to require me to give my whole day to Him 
What a burden. God, surely, there's, there's something lacking with respect to goodness in that command. Or, we think the Sabbath isn't good enough, we need to add laws and regulations and stipulations to it. God has said, do. Honor the Sabbath. Make it holy. Sanctify this day. Come and sit with me. Come and dine with me. Come and, and fellowship with me. And then we want to bind one another with additional regulations that God hasn't given. God created the Sabbath as an abiding gift to mankind. And I think these various scenes that we see in the Gospel accounts of Jesus healing and, and, and using those occasions to confront those who opposed God, who opposed the goodness of God on this day. Jesus was compelled to address it. One, one final comment about the scene itself that I did not mention earlier, that I think is insightful. No one speaks to Jesus. No one provokes this, this whole scene. No one provokes this conversation. Jesus observes the man with the withered hand. He observes the men sitting in wait for him. And Jesus instigates the whole thing. Why? Because to fail to show God's goodness is an evil. The lack of positive duty is an evil. To say Jesus could have passively stood by while evil took place would also have been evil. The goodness of God is revealed in the Sabbath and it's most gloriously offered and displayed to those united to God by faith in Jesus Christ. So the Sabbath reveals the goodness of God to every man. We saw that even to the beasts of the field. But if the Sabbath is good for the beasts of the field, how much more to a human being created in his image? And then again, how much more to one blood-bought and purchased and united to God through Christ Jesus? So beloved, may we never say in our hearts, the Sabbath isn't good. Or that in the Sabbath, there's some lack of goodness, that God is withholding something from us or requiring of us something that is ill towards us. May we, by faith, say, this is the goodness of God expressed in this rhythm of a life, a life with a rhythm of one in seven, where there's no question on a Saturday of where you're going to be on the Lord's Day morning. That your children never have to ask you, Dad, are we going to church tomorrow? Do I need to set out clothes? Are we going to be at church tomorrow? Well, of course. Isn't, is it Sunday? Then that's where we're going to be. Unless we're providentially hindered. There should never be a, a debate in our minds. And if there is, will you come back to this idea? Come back to this notion. Come back to this, this anchor point. What's the heart of the Sabbath? Saints, it's the goodness of your God. This is the goodness of your triune God expressed fully, faithfully, infinitely and personally
bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you seek to receive the full measure of God's goodness to you? As you sanctify this day in your minds, in your hearts, on your calendars, in your family schedules, for the Lord's sake, for your neighbor's benefit, and for your eternal good, will you sanctify this day? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we are grateful that you have given to us, that you've given to us your goodness. You've given to us Christ, the full measure of your goodness in bodily form. We, we pray that you will give us eyes of faith uh, to, to, to see the goodness of our God in this day. You will give us open hands of faith by which we can receive the good blessings of our God poured out upon us through these ordinary means of grace. And Father, we confess that we, we do find them sometimes far too ordinary and we despise them as such. And we go off looking for some new thing, some extra thing, some better thing by which we might grow in grace rather than simply submitting ourselves to the plain, repeated teaching of Your Word to submit ourselves to the Word of God, to lift up our voices in praise to You, to lift up our voices in prayer and supplication and confession to You, to submit our hearts to the ordinances as You've given to us, the Lord's Supper week by week by week, and to reflect back upon our own baptisms and believe that these means are sufficient to cause us to grow in grace. They are sufficient to hold us fast to our Savior. They are sufficient to preserve us for glory. Father, will you give us a, a capacity to receive the goodness of our God this day? Amen.